0: Good Wednesday morning. It's 9.06. In just a second, we're going to talk to a man who, well, he cheated death on Friday. An incredible story. 11 skiers, backcountry skiers, on their way to a popular location in Banff National Park, Bow Hut. Eight of them caught in an avalanche. Miraculously, all eight survived. Todd Wyatt sustained the most serious injuries He's going to speak with us, tell his story in just a second. It's truly incredible. Our mailbag is bursting today, so we've scheduled some time to get into that. Many of you have chimed in on topics that we've touched on over the last week or so, so we'll circle back there. In the 10 o'clock hour, it's Wednesday. That means really cool jobs. And in the spotlight today, Megan Mama Circus, they call her, the founder of CircoFit, You know, circus performers, if you've seen them work, if you've attended a Cirque du Soleil, you can imagine the physical requirements. So it's no surprise that many people may pursue that art form as a method of staying physically fit. We'll get the details just after 10 o'clock. And as mentioned in the 11 o'clock hour, and we're going to kind of wait to see how the show plays out here. We're supposed to right at 11 o'clock speak with Jeff Rout. He's the founder of the Alberta Freedom Party. He's a sovereigntist. In other words, he wants to separate. He thinks Alberta should walk away from the rest of Canada. He's got his reasons. We'll talk to Jeff Rout. We may bring him in a little earlier because we want to bring you the news conference live at 11 o'clock where the Northlands board will outline exactly what the plan is with that massive chunk of land and those big assets, including what is now known as Rexall Place. Of course, once the Edmonton Oilers and the Oil Kings move downtown to Rogers Place. So we're expecting that announcement right around 11 o'clock from Northlands. Most likely we're gonna take you there live. Did you hear this story? The 11 backcountry skiers on their way to Bow Hut in Banff National Park, Friday, late afternoon. There's no reason for me to tell you this story. Let's welcome in Todd Wyatt, who was there and survived what proved to be a massive act from Mother Nature. Todd Wyatt joining us over the phone this morning. How are you, Todd?
1: Ryan, I'm doing much better.
0: I guess that's kind of a, a question that you may approach or answer differently than you would have last, let's say Thursday or Friday. Are you feeling like you're counting your lucky stars? Where's your head at right now? Yeah, I would. I would agree, hundred percent. It's good
1: to be home. I definitely am looking at life a little differently after that.
0: Well, Todd, we've got some time here, so I mean, uh, I can appreciate a good story, and, and it's even better when it's true. Bring us up to speed on who you were with, where you were going, and and ultimately what happened.
1: Uh, we were heading off Friday to Pole Hut, which is up on the Wapta Icefield. So there were actually eight of us skiing out of Red Deer, local local ski club, and. Met three other guys on the trail. They kind of tagged along with us as we got closer closer to the hut. So as we made our final approach uh, into the valley below the hut, there's about a, I think it's about a 300 or 400 meter climb up to a bench where the hut sits on. So we took what we thought was probably one of the most, well, I thought it was the safest approach. There. The group agreed. And uh, we headed off kind of traversing the slope on our way up. And we're spread out you know for safety reasons and three of our parties were close to the lead to kind of hung back a little bit to kind of keep an eye on the situation and then the three of us were kind of in the middle of the pack so as we made our way up the slope we uh i guess i would say we were probably three quarters the way up the three of us that were in the middle the so three that were caught in the slide and uh yeah do you want me to go into the details of like it, yeah, absolutely. It I mean,
0: yeah, happened. we just we just want to hear. I mean, we're trying. I'm I, I personally listening to this. I'm trying to put myself in, in your ski boots, so to speak. So so you're just you're just a short time away from reaching this bow hut. I would imagine you're envisioning getting into some warm, dry clothes. Probably getting into a decent meal.
1: Yeah, we're just you know you're on. You're doing your pace. You're taking your time to get up there. We're all carrying heavy packs. You know, I had probably sixty or sixty five pounds in my pack, so you're not making a lot of time. You're just you're just slowly chugging your way uphill. And uh we were, yeah, yeah, I'd say we were three quarters of the way up. I had uh my other ski buddy Dion out in front. He was maybe fifty to seventy five yards in front. And uh just crafting the rise on the way into the hut and next thing I heard this what sounded like a rifle crack, just a like a rifle shot. And I looked up and saw the slope drop in front of Dion and just like time stood still. I I couldn't believe it was happening. We always as backcountry skiers and climbers and stuff, everyone reads the articles and we do the safety training and it's always somebody else. It's it's never in our circle of influence, let alone being in it ourselves, and I just stood there and was in shock. I couldn't believe it was happening. So um, didn't have much time to react, but I, I was close to the edge of where the, where I thought the slide was going to come down, so I thought at least if I could turn myself around and maybe get pointed, angled into the, like downward, but away from the slide I might have a chance of skiing out of it, but uh, they are fast. <laughs> There's no chance of even <clears throat> getting out of the way. It's like a freight train coming down the mountain. So I made a couple of quick steps trying to turn around. You can't move fast with a pack on, and uh, by the time I had turned maybe halfway to where i wanted to um the the slope dropped out from underneath me and it released released where i was standing so that release kind of turned me as the slope above the snow that was piling down engulfed me and, and kind of pulled pushed me over and the force of that
0: So, Todd, you're God. saying the avalanche actually carried you over a cliff? Yes. Uh, how how far would you ex would you would you estimate that you fell?
1: I was told by our by our uh, tour leader that it, the cliff band was about forty feet.
0: Forty how feet. It. Yep. And over And you've already got a shattered leg, and and you're you're in the midst of being overwhelmed by this avalanche with a mouthful and a throat full of snow as well, or at least trying to keep the snow out. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was it was kind of crazy. I had I. Got one hand up in front of my face to try and keep the snow from ramming down my throat again. So it was it was it worked to kind of keep my airway open. So that was good. But when I hit the bottom of the of the cliff band, you know, felt the impact. But I was in the midst of the avalanche. But I was really deeply buried at that point. And uh, you know, up above I could see daylight. But when I hit the bottom of that of that fall, it was snow pouring over top of me, and I was down quite deep. So, I just remember i was I got the sensation of being on my back and being pulled along face up, and then just the slide finally started to slow. You could feel things slowing down, and the pressure started to increase. You could feel your body just being crushed and it was at that moment I just you know i am going to call it a divine intervention i being a christian guy you, you put your faith in in the fact that you looked after and i you know I'd been praying to survive this thing, and all of a sudden. I was basically lifted from the bottom of the avalanche where it was quite dark, and I could feel myself being pushed up towards the surface, and I could see more and more daylight. So I knew I was getting close to the surface, which was good, but I was also being crushed by the, by the weight of the snow. So I, as it came to a stop, I took as deep a breath as I could just to expand my ribs because I knew if I, my ribs were crushed, I wouldn't be able to ever get a breath in again. And then as, as I stopped, I had my left hand up, and my right hand protecting my face, and I kind of drove my left hand out towards the surface, and it broke. I just drove it towards the light, and it actually broke free on the surface right as I came to a stop.
0: How did that feel?
1: It was good because I knew I had I'd have some air, and I knew I was close enough to be rescued. But it was still terrifying to be to be frozen and crushed. Because at last, when that slide stopped, it basically took my. Inflated lungs and crushed my chest. And again, I had maybe a a quarter or third of a breath that I could take. Like I couldn't expand my lungs. So I I was breathing, but I had to make sure I didn't hyperventilate at that point because you just you couldn't breathe. So my hand was out on the surface, and I was just praying that someone was still not buried and, and able to rescue us. So I kind of flopped my glove around on the surface. A matter. Of-
0: Had, he essentially, Todd was looking to confirm that you were alive and that you could you could you could remain alive for the for the short term future while he and and hopefully others tried to clear those that may be completely buried. Now were all of you carrying the you know the, the avalanche beacons and the safety probes and the shovels and the whole nine yards? Was everybody equipped?
1: Yeah, yeah and, on all and, of our tours we have to have that gear. Man.
0: And would you say that I mean, are those beacons must be what potentially saved your buddy Dion's life?
1: Matter of probably uh, just minutes that they got to the, the second victim and were excavating, and he was buried quite deep.
0: He was he was conscious deep. at the time? Yeah,
1: he was conscious. He was breathing. He was kind of in a semi-sitting position and was somehow able to maintain an air pocket right in front of him, like with his arms up. And I like he, he was really lucky because I know where I was buried. The pressure of the snow was so intense that I couldn't even keep my keep my lungs inflated let alone keep my arms and you know keep a bit of an air pocket in front of me so it was it was a miracle that he was able to to have any oxygen down as far as it
0: is buried. No kidding. It's interesting to hear you say, you know, you in, in training or or colloquially speaking, people will say, you know, try to swim your way to the top of the <laughs> snow or try to move and you're going, listen, when when you're in the thick of it, uh, it it's it's virtually impossible. I know that a lot cool. of sledders that are out there, a lot of snowmobiles snow, snowmobilers wear those the vests with the rip cord where they'll inflate um, as as soon as an avalanche begins. I suppose you almost were in the opposite scenario, like you said, as a backcountry skier, as a trekker, uh, you're carrying a whole bunch of weight on your back.
1: Yeah, so you're, as you know,
0: you are buried under snow your leg is shattered you're you're struggling to get a a lung full of air and you realize you've got to spend the night outside when we come back with Todd Wyatt avalanche survivor out of Lacombe Alberta we'll ask him how he kept his wits about him how he remained calm and where he goes from here we'll be right back Our guest this half hour, lucky to be alive, Todd Wyatt, 44-year-old resident from Lacombe, caught in an avalanche Friday afternoon with his friends. Uh, Todd, I can tell you, people uh, reflecting on the text line are are, are just marveling at this story. It's it's certainly an incredible one. Uh, Let's Pick up where we left off there before the commercial break. You're still buried under snow. Your uh, your you're, members of your team are working to free the others who are still buried. You've got a shattered leg, and then what? When did you realize that you were going to have to stay out there overnight? Um,
1: yeah. When the other when the group came back after they had excavated uh, the other two, uh, two of our party that were up above had waited quite a while for the slope to clear and make sure nothing else was going to slide before they came down to to assist with the rescue and they picked their way down one of one of that uh, group had a sat phone so they were on the phone as the others were excavating me so i could hear the details of the the parks canada and search and rescue team plan Um, the issue was that it was getting quite late in the day and they don't fly after dark so by the time they were working on me and set up our safe zone and done what they needed to do to orchestrate the rescue. Uh, parts of Canada wasn't willing to fly in or send a ground team in because of the high avi conditions and uh, the potential for more slides. So it took them quite a while to get me out just because of the leg and because of the way I was positioned when I was buried. What's going
0: through your mind at this point, Todd? I mean, are you thinking about your family? Are you thinking about your kids?
1: and uh but you know three of them hauled me out of the hole and then they had a safe zone set up well i guess safe wasn't really safe it was safer where i was safer than where i was so they had hauled packs and skis and and anything left over from the slide over to a safer area so at that point i decided i wanted to take a look at my leg and see what was actually going on and uh, looked down and my knee was pointing forward and my foot was pointing about 90 degrees to the right so it was, it was apparent at that point that yeah my i knew what was going on but i had to confirm it so i started, didn't want to look at that anymore and i just put my focus on crawling through the debris field and uh getting to that that hole that they had dug so that we could hunker down for the night that was a bit of a bit of an ordeal crawling across but uh, tom had his headlamp on and he kind of guided me across the debris field and uh, made my way there
0: Incredible, so we'll fast forward through to the to the weekend have you did you have surgery on your leg I assume
1: yeah after i after I was out um, the one the biggest issue was me not wanting them to take my ski boot off, so we uh the ambulance drivers were adamant that they were going to take my ski boot off, and I was adamant that they were not going to take it off, so waited until I got to the hospital. They were waiting for us because they, they had been told we were coming in the night before, but um yeah, got to the hospital nice enough to knock me out with a combination of different uh, narcotics so i didn't feel anything when i pulled the ski boot off and that was that was the start of my night in the hospital of x-rays and surgery and resetting the, the uh, dislocated ankle but hmm. uh, that was the worst part was the night like the night that we spent out there because i had no way to stay warm you know we we did our best we all had good gear we all had sleeping bags we all have down jackets but the inability to be able to get up and move made it pretty tough to stay warm and you know I thank my team for that because without them you know I had two sleeping bags on I was wrapped up I was looked after as best
0: you must have an incredible bond with those team members now even stronger than before Todd would you change anything in retrospect and can you see yourself heading back out to ski in the backcountry again
1: Yeah, I I would say, you know, once a skier, always a skier, I I think it maybe has changed my perspective on maybe the type of trips that I would go on depending on the conditions. You know, a lot of the stuff that we do, we're a pretty low-risk group overall, and uh, we don't ski into a lot of intense, really risky territory to begin with. So I don't think those trips will change for me. You know, maybe these higher elevation, higher angle, higher risk slopes... I might rethink things you know the the avalanche conditions on this past weekend were in the middle of the of the rating scale you know was there still a risk of avalanche yes but there's a risk every time you go out so i guess you know to mitigate that risk you just have to decide what your comfort zone is and maybe maybe for me after this trip and maybe for others on the team we uh maybe we dial things down even further
0: well, Todd, I mean, it's it's just a remarkable story. We're obviously, to say the very least, so thankful that every member of your team survived this, and uh, we really appreciate you, we appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us about your experience today, and, and wish you all the best in your recovery. Oh, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate being here. That's Todd Wyatt, the forty four year old forty four year old out of Lacombe, Alberta, uh, one of eleven in a backcountry ski group, eight of them. Trapped in an avalanche, all of them, as you heard, surviving. It's an incredible story. It's a story that's forefronted in our minds, as we know. Not everyone is that lucky, and we've been reminded of that even this winter, just a short time ago, with other residents across the province of Alberta. The more we know, the better, we say. And our thanks to Todd Wyatt for that. Here's the news. It's kind of an interesting mashup, Gina. I like that. Just switch. Yeah, we can do that. We could do we could do audience fueled music mashups. To no, be careful what we ask for. I guess right. Yeah. Uh, our thanks to Todd Wyatt who survived that avalanche in Banff National Park on Friday for talking to us. What an incredible story. Uh, Sean on the text line says I'm glad to be hearing from him instead of about him. Isn't that the truth? Fred says if there was a high risk of avalanche and Parks Canada wouldn't head in to rescue, what were you guys doing in there? Well, Fred, keep in mind it's the. Uh, you know, they don't fly at night. They're not bringing rescue choppers in at night. So these guys were trapped. And second of all, yeah, you're right. The snow was unsettled following that avalanche, which, by the way, so this was a size two avalanche. It also triggered a second avalanche on an adjacent slope, a size, what did they say, 1.5, one This is a hell of a thing to survive, but it sounds like... And this is uh, from Todd Wyatt directly that they were well-equipped and well-trained. Someone here says, uh, <laughs> well, I can't read the first part of the text. It's 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 uh, enthusiastic in your impression on whether or not these guys should have been out there. And then you say, listener says, no respect for Mother Nature. See, I don't think that's a fair thing to take out of this. If anything, people that are out backcountry skiing... Have probably an immense amount of respect for Mother Nature. You know they're out there to be one with the mountains. They're out there uh, heading out to this beautiful bow hut, which is well known. It's maintained by the Alpine Club of Canada. This is a well-traveled backcountry ski route, about eight kilometers. And it, but it brings up the question. I mean, this is still, of course, forefront in our memory. It was just a, a short time ago. It was it was just the end of January. You remember that five snowmobilers died. Near McBride, BC. Sledders out of Alberta, John Garley out of Stony Plain, and, and Todd Chisholm out of St. Albert, and Ricky Robinson out of Spruce Grove, and Tony Greenwood out of Grand Prairie County, and Vincent Lowen out of Vegreville. We don't forget those names, and there have been those that have perished before them. Same story out of McBride. Everybody says these guys weren't high marking, they weren't riding irresponsibly. They were just passionate about the sport of sledding, and they were doing what they loved. At that time, I remember following the McBride slide, you may remember we talked to an avalanche expert, a training expert, Lori Zacharek from Zach's Tracks, because we wanted to address the story, but we thought it was too soon to have the conversation, do you allow the presence of danger or the threat of, of something to stop you from pursuing something you love. You don't have that conversation hours after an avalanche that's claimed five lives. But I think in the context of this slide, near Hut in Banff National Park on Friday, we can have that conversation. I mean, these guys dodged major bullets. These guys cheated death, but they're they're alive and they're here. I was curious to ask him if he'd backcountry ski again. I mean, that was a traumatic experience. I don't know if I would. I think I might. We don't have time to get into it. I had a dive accident in Maui, about 36 meters under. I won't tell the whole story, but it it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster, and I was lucky to survive, and I owe my life to a professional scuba photographer who happened to be about 100 yards away from me when everything went sideways about 100 feet below the surface. So, do i dive again i had to dive again i had to dive later that day because i told the dive master on the boat if i didn't get back in the water today i'm never getting back in the water again the mental barrier will be much too big my dive training since then i mean i've I've advanced myself two certifications up and not that i didn't take it seriously before but i'll tell you i take it way more seriously now my personality totally changes on a dive boat I'm not really kind of the, the clown. I'm actually quite far from it. I'm pretty focused. I kind of keep to myself. And for that reason, what's your story? Let us know. 6.30, 6.30. Gina, let's get into the mailbag. <laughs> received feedback via the email link just check out shows at 630 ched.com we hang on to as many as we can you remember a while ago we were talking about pregnancies and provincial politics how do you feel about mlas specifically cabinet ministers taking leave or growing their families while they're on the job Lynette sent us an email, says I'm a feminist and and I've had to make compromises to stay at home for maternity and, and look after my kids. I put my career on hold and I had to start from the bottom when I returned to the workforce. To allow an elected MLA maternity leave will knock back the progress women have striven for since the 60s. It worries me that this will move voters to discount voting for women as MLAs in future. Generally, the consensus could be we typically allow so many women into government and they want everything their way. Lynette says this is too radical a change. When I vote for an MLA, I vote for that person to represent me continuously for that specific term. This is not a good day for women. That was Lynette's take on it. You can let me know what you think about that. We had a spirited conversation. People feel drastically different. This is one of those topics where there's a spectrum. It's it's neither option A or B. Many of you saying, well, okay, for example, I want to encourage more women to pursue political careers. I understand we need our elected representatives, most specifically our cabinet ministers, in office, especially when the ledge is in session. But at the same time, we've got to be reasonable. And if people want to have a family, we can't suggest that they should resign, conduct a by-election at the taxpayer's expense. Others of you said, that's exactly what we should do. We can let you know, by the way, that Stephanie McLean, the MLA out of Calgary, gave birth to a healthy baby boy, Patrick, on Friday. By all accounts, Patrick's a healthy young lad, Stephanie and her husband, Shane, the proud parents. Congratulations to them. Lorraine sent me an email following our conversation with Degas Sikorsky on Tuesday. You remember him, the Edmonton man that received that nasty Valentine's Day card with a homophobic slur on it from his workplace in North Edmonton? Lorraine says, as I listened to this interview about the young man getting that hate-fueled Valentine card due to his sexual orientation, I wonder also more seriously about the person who gave him this message, whether it be a manager or whomever it is. Since they're working in a customer-driven place, this manager's attitude would certainly become apparent in the sales area. Hatred at any level perks its ugly head in many different ways. I wonder if customers in general are driven away due to his or her inept ability to experience unconditional love. Lorraine says, I hope this experience will grant young Degas courage to confront people in future. Also received an interesting email from Gary Zeman, a regular listener to the show. Gary, touching on what we tackled yesterday with Sheila Gunn-Reed from Rebel Media and Dave Cornway and Tristan Hopper from the National Post and you who commented on who should be given access to government lockups, to closed news conferences and briefings. You've no doubt heard, if not on this show, somewhere else, that... The rebel media has been ousted. They've been blacklisted from the legislature. Gary says if anyone can be accredited as a journalist, there's potential for hundreds of bloggers to fill the legislative assembly during sittings and other areas for press conferences. The city of Edmonton and Northlands may be able to at least solve the space part of this program. Rather than making multi-hockey rinks out of Northlands, reduce the number of rinks by two. Move the ledge to Northlands for sittings and press conferences. All journalists, the public, bloggers and visitors could be accommodated. Parking problems would be reduced. The hockey scoreboard would require some adaptations for all in attendance. The speaker could use the board clock to time question period. The horn would sound to inform members when to end their speeches or questions. And hot dogs, hamburgers and maybe a few beers could be sold at minor league prices. I like it, Gary. Keep in mind, we'll bring you the news conference with Northland CEO Tim Reed and Mayor Don Iveson right around 11 o'clock today. We'll learn more about what the city and Northland's plan is with that facility and the surrounding area moving forward. We'll get back into the mailbag right after this. On the heels of our conversation with Todd Wyatt, the Lacombe man who was one of eight to survive an avalanche near Hut. On Friday, Craig says about, you know, getting back on the horse, so to speak. I had a motorcycle accident where I suffered a spinal cord injury, says uh, Sulengo Lingo did uh, covered my story on Global News last New Year's Eve. Uh, it was another miraculous scenario. Craig says, however, I've been looking for a way to get back on the road ever since. Says I don't like trikes or the spider. Uh, I just came across a tilting trike made in Washington State that has my interest. It leans just like a real motorcycle. So Craig, who's living with a spinal cord injury, looking to get back on the bike. Yeah, that's another. That's another thing with motorcycles. If you've been in a serious motorcycle crash, I know for a lot of people, we had uh, family friends of ours. They were they they're big Honda Goldwing fans. You know the big Honda Goldwing. They're probably the biggest. I mean, I know there are some huge Harley touring bikes, but the Goldwings are, are real big boys and. And Rudy and Dina were involved in a horrific crash, a horrific crash, where they were, they were stopped on a highway waiting to turn left, and they were hit at highway speed. And you can imagine the injuries. And they're, you know, I mean, the conversation with their family, do you get back on the bike or not? Do you buy a bike again or not? Beverly says, I had a ball Uh, or bale, rather, from a horse when I was 29. I broke my pelvis, dislocated my left knee, broke my left foot. I was dragged 40 feet. I was struck numerous times by the hooves. I'm now 49. I still ride. I did not get back up on the horse right away. It took me over a year. However, perseverance is key to any success, says Beverly. I do think regardless of the activity you undertake, there could be danger, but you have chosen to accept the risk. She says, I carry insurance coverage for that reason. And uh, she says, I think we all should carry insurance. I don't think the taxpayer should be responsible for your rescue or for the recovery of anything of yours, like a snowmobile. Beverly says, I think we should be responsible for those costs ourselves. I believe, uh, you know, it should fall on the shoulders of the participants. Says, I'm sure glad the guys involved in this avalanche were rescued. What a blessing. She says, I do think that they have the most respect for Mother Nature, With regards to what they're doing, she says, hey, you know, things happen. Norm on the text line here says, "Uh, am I able to listen to the entire story about avalanche survivors online somewhere? I just heard the last few minutes. Yeah, Norm. Uh, Gina, we'll be posting that, of course, as we do all of our sound files at 630ched.com. Norm just clicks on the show's link. Do you have any idea how soon that might go up? Uh, Yeah, uh, between 10 and 10.30, usually 10.30 at the very, very latest. Okay, so as soon as we bump into the next hour... That yeah, hour gets posted exactly, and and Ryan. Huh. Now you know I never ever put you on the spot like this, and you know I never ever ask you. But okay. Because I've I've been under the water. I haven't scuba dived, but I've been in one of those huh. buoyancy observation bubbles under the under the water that look like an underwater scooter. Yeah. C- would you mind sharing your? You want to hear the story? story? Yeah, because well, you know, I've never heard it, and I, w- I would really like to share. There it are a few it. people that have texted in saying they want to hear the scuba if you don't story. Mind. Like I didn't. No, I don't, I don't mind telling oh, okay. it. It's it's one of it those. Just, uh, sure. You know no, me, no, I'm, I'm happy like to. a cat. I'm curious. Sure. Fair enough. Let's fit in a break when we come back. I'll tell you how I just about died 100 feet under the water in Maui. That's coming right up. All right, I don't tell this story very often, but this is this is in the context following our conversation with Todd Wyatt, the Lacombe man, one of eight to survive an avalanche in Banff National Park on Friday. The conversation about getting back on the horse, uh, taking a risk to do something you love, something goes sideways, and then you're faced with that decision, will I ever do this again? Did I cheat death the one time? Was that my one time? Was that a message to me or did I get that one out of the way? You know, the, the concept of lightning not striking twice in the same place. So it's 2007. We're in Maui. I dive. I, I had at that point logged about 40 dives, mostly down in South America, a few in Mexico and the Dominican and some other spots. And I decided to spend the morning diving. Uh, if you've been to Maui, especially if you're a, a diver, you know about the Molokini crater, Uh, there's the inside of the crater, which is a phenomenal dive. And then there's the Molokini back wall, which is uh, unbelievable. It drops down uh, hundreds of meters. It's just spectacular. So for the first time ever, I had decided to dive with a big digital SLR camera, decided to take that down with me. And we we had been doing some deep areas of the dive, which as divers know, impact the amount of compressed air that you're using. I hadn't dove for several years. I probably could have used a refresher. Just a heads up, the story does not make me look very good. It doesn't make me look very smart. So on the dive boat, there were seven of us. So I was diving without a buddy, which is also a big red flag. The idea was to stay with the dive master and his dive buddy. But, you know, I was swimming around under there. I was making myself work. It was the first time I had been down with a big digital camera. And the photos that were returning were spectacular. So I was exerting more energy than I normally would, diving deeper than I was accustomed to, and quite frankly, being completely negligent in checking my gauges and essentially looking out for my air, which as you can imagine, at between 25 to 40 meters underwater is essential to state the obvious. So I'm working around down there. I'm swimming around. I'm snapping photos. Everybody's copacetic. Everything's good. And and all of a sudden, it just feels like I'm working a little bit harder to get air. And I go to reach back. As you know, a lot of times your instruments will trail behind you on a dive. And I'm reaching back behind me, my camera in my right hand, to get the gauge on the left. And as I'm bringing the gauge forward, and keep in mind... In a full compressed tank, about 3,000 PSI. There's about 3,000 PSI in a full tank. You'll start your ascent with about 700 PSI left. Because you need about six, seven minutes to get up. You can't just shoot to the surface. And as I bring my instruments in front of me to look, all of a sudden I feel... And I look down and my heart stops as I see my gauge pinned at zero my tank is completely empty and i'm more than 30 meters under the surface and at that moment i had this surge of adrenaline and i realized that whatever i decided to do in the next 10 seconds would dictate however much longer i was on this planet and maybe what my time moving forward looked like way too deep to try to shoot to the surface and if you did you'd do irreparable damage to yourself And that's when I saw an underwater professional photographer working far from me, but just close enough that I figured I had enough air left to get to him. I went all in. And I just started torpedoing towards this guy. And he flipped around and he looked at me and at first he thought I was kind of kidding. And so he kicked his fins up in front of him, almost in a sitting position on the ocean floor. And I could see him focusing his lens on me, thinking I was clowning around. And that's when I realized I had just a second to send a message. And so I'm shaking my head no. And I pulled my regulator out, coming at him with my mouth just there to send him a message. I'm in serious trouble and I need you now. So he reaches behind him, and he, and he pulls out his spare regulator, and he holds it out for me, and I swam right into that thing. And that first breath was, well, you can imagine. And so wide-eyed, and he's just as wide-eyed as I am, we sit there and he tries to calm me down as we slowly begin and try to calmly begin our ascent to the surface. And for the next six or seven minutes, including five minutes at a safety stop where we just communicated silently, we bonded. And we reached the surface, and that's when this guy got a little emotional. Into the dive boat to have some alone time, obviously had to debrief. There's obviously a lot more to this story. The implications were serious. The dive masters wanted to hear all about it because you rarely will talk to somebody who's been through something like that and survived. A stupid mistake on my part but I'll tell you I don't dive with one iota of carelessness anymore. I've gone way over time here let's hit the headlines and then we'll move into the 10 o'clock hour with an interesting lively edition of Really Cool Jobs.